0: Our texts this morning come uh, from the same places they came from last week, Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 22, Matthew 24, 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. <laughs> then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And then Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word We trust that your word will do what you purpose for it to do this morning. And it is to you and to you alone that we look. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, You you will remember last week that I I mentioned that my new microphone, I'm taking a little bit of time to get used to it and get it adjusted, but I think it's too big, or too small, rather, and that my head is too big. And, uh, and I asked you not to give me any compliments. Well, I'm told that last week, um, the sermon was a little hard to follow and maybe a little bit like drinking from a fire hose and guess what, my microphone fits this week. That worked, it shrunk my head down. Uh, I was also informed, by phone call no less, that it was not 30, but 39 minutes long. And my twofold response is this, Number one, I will try to be clearer, and I will also try harder to hit the 30-minute mark on the sermon, but I issue the following disclaimer. The prayers and the scripture reading don't count. So the sermon last week was 35 minutes long, not 30 minutes long. Thank you, Mr. Altabelli. So in the interest of time, let me review the main point that I labored to make to you last week and probably failed. Um, The Bible employs two what we might call prophetic devices in Scripture. One is prophecy, and it's a straightforward word from God to the prophet to tell God's people what is going to happen And what it means. And what it means is often as important or more important than what's going to happen. The second is something that modern scholars call a typology. A typology. And you mostly find typologies in the New Testament looking back through the New Testament at the Old Testament and taking an event that happened there. Um, the person who, in the New Testament who's writing the Scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit looks at an Old Testament event or an Old Testament prophecy, which was already fulfilled in the Old Testament times, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, discovers that the event or prophecy also speaks to something in the New Testament writer's day. And this we find these particularly in uh, some aspect of the significance of Jesus, and his ministry. The most famous typology of all is the one that I introduced to you last week and many of you were not aware that this wasn't just a straightforward prophecy. It's in Matthew chapter one verse 23 where Matthew quotes Isaiah 14, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now if you go back to Isaiah chapter seven and actually just sit down and read the whole chapter In the context, you will find that the context from which Isaiah spoke those words was an oracle from God in the situation that follows. A king in the southern kingdom of Judah, whose name was Ahaz, was being threatened by the combined force of two kingdoms that wanted to conquer him and put a puppet king on his throne and carve up his lands for themselves. And humanly speaking, they were quite capable of that. And King Ahaz was a man of very little, perhaps no faith in God at all. And he was afraid. And his people saw him being afraid. And they were afraid. Because when your king is afraid, you know it's time for you to be afraid. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz with a prophecy, a message from God Almighty. And God says, look, Ahaz, this thing that you're worried about with these two kings, it's not going to happen. You don't need to be afraid, and this is my sign that you don't need to be afraid. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, and before he's old enough to know the wrong from the right, these two kings will be dead, and their kingdoms no longer a threat. They will actually be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, and that's exactly what happened two or three years later. Those kings... And their kingdoms were swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. And you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, scholars have all kinds of fun trying to figure out who um, virgin birth number one was. So some would say, well, maybe it was Isaiah's uh, wife or second wife. Uh, some say it might have been somebody in the royal household. The truth is we don't know. Okay. Um, The scripture doesn't record anything about the actual virgin who conceived, nor does it record the birth of the child, but it does record the event that the sign pointed to, namely the destruction of these two enemy kings. And because God is a God who keeps all of his promises, then it just stands to reason that the sign was fulfilled too, and that the woman was somebody near enough to King Ahaz that he knew about her situation, and he took comfort in it. So there are two virgin births in Scripture. This child in his time and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1, the first one points authoritatively to the second one. And he says that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that's just fine. Uh, Matthew is writing Scripture and in that role he is functioning as a prophet and as Peter says in 2 Peter 1:21 no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy spirit now some of you might be worried that this somehow makes Jesus less special but it doesn't what made Jesus unique was not his virgin birth The child in Isaiah 7.14 was also virgin-born. It wasn't his rising from the dead that made him unique. Elijah raised the widow's son, and Jesus raised Lazarus, and Paul raised a guy named Eutychus from the dead. In Acts chapter 20, he fell asleep during one of his sermons, and he fell out the window. And I have to say, in 30 years of ministry, I've never killed anybody with any of my boring sermons, but Paul did, and he raised Eutychus to life. It wasn't even his bodily ascension into heaven that made Jesus special. Enoch and Elijah both received that. The deepest essence of what made Jesus unique is that he was both fully God and fully man. And because of that, his virgin birth, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven take on a new significance and a new power than those other instances did not possess. Now, very quickly, let me also also introduce another concept, uh, and then we will dive in. Um, There are places in the Scripture which seem to have a kind of double vision. They seem to describe two different things at the same time. And the clearest example of this that I can think of is found in the book of Ezekiel, and I'm going to encourage you to turn there. In Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, in Ezekiel 28, God sends his word to the prophet Ezekiel to speak an oracle of judgment against the king of Tyre. And he's speaking an oracle of judgment against the king of Tyre for his pride. God says, You have lifted up your heart. You have said that you are God. You have acquired great wisdom and great wealth. And now God is saying through Ezekiel, judgment has come. You will be conquered and you will be killed. So that's the oracle against the king of Tyre. You find that in Ezekiel 28, uh, verse 1. And then in Ezekiel 28 and verse 11, God tells Ezekiel to take up a lamentation or a funeral song for the king of Tyre. So God's pronounced judgment. Now the judgment is said and done. And God says, now take up a funeral song, a, a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And listen to this. Moreover, this is verse 11 of Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, uh, uh, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, and I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire from out of your midst, and it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, who is that about? Who does that sound like? Satan, that's right. At one level, it's about the king of Tyre, and there's these little snippets in that second part that sound like they could be towards a human being. But at another level, it says a bunch of things that don't apply to the king of Tyre at all. They seem to speak of a mighty angel who fell. And you can also find something similar uh, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, concerning the king of Babylon, whom Isaiah calls the morning star, who's cast out of heaven because he sought to usurp God's throne. Once again, sounds like the king of Babylon, sounds like Satan. So those passages are doing a double duty. They have a, a, a kind of a double vision, right? They speak of two different persons at the same time an earthly king, and a fallen angel. Okay, so now we understand what a prophecy is. We have a beginner's grasp of a typology, and we've been introduced to this double vision phenomenon. Why is that important? Well, because all of these things, these three things, are found in the passages of the New Testament concerning the last days, and in particular around the issue of the Antichrist or at least I believe it to be so. Now, I'm going to make certain assumptions that I won't take the time to argue for, and I'll tell you what they are, and if you disagree with any of them, that's fine. Uh, One of the reasons I don't spend a lot of time, frankly, on apocalyptic literature is because nobody agrees what it means. And uh, these things are widely dis- debated by scholars who are more learned than me. So if you work really hard, actually, you don't have to work hard at all. If you just Google, you can find somebody that will tell you something you like better than what I have to say to you if you don't like what I have to say. So here's, the, here's the, the, some of the, my assumptions here. Number one, the man of sin, wh- who is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and the Antichrist, who's mentioned in Uh, 1 John 2.18, and the beast, who is mentioned in Revelation 13, are three descriptions of one person. They're not three different people, they're three descriptions of one person. So if any of those uh, passages, three passages, can shed light on the identity of that person, it helps explain the other passages. Number two, the restrainer, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 5, is the Holy Spirit. Number three, these passages addressed the needs and the situation of the original readers first and us second. So in other words, the Holy Spirit wasn't saying, here, John, here's some scripture. It doesn't really pertain to you or to the church today. Just keep it safe for 2,000 years so that the people I really wrote it to will have it when they need it. No. No. It was addressed to them in the first century to give them clarity of vision and to give them peace in extremely difficult circumstances. Number four, both Matthew 24 and Revelation 13 contain some of this double vision stuff that I mentioned before. Now, every one of those points is disputed, as I said, by somebody, so if you disagree with me, um, you can go find somebody you like better that's fine I, you won't hurt my feelings in the slightest. In Revelation chapter thirteen, uh, which was our call to worship this morning, we are introduced to a fearsome creature who rises out of the sea. It has seven heads. Now, Rome was frequently called by the nickname in antiquity of Septa Montium, which means Seven Mountains. It was called this because the city was established on seven hills, or seven mountains. So here's this beast that has seven heads. This beast is said to have features of different animals. He's like a leopard, but his feet are like bear's feet, and his mouth was like a a lion's mouth. Now, if you were a first century reader, and particularly a Jewish reader uh, of, of this prophecy, this revelation, this certainly would have put you in mind of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And Daniel is told by divine interpretation that each beast is a kingdom or an empire. And Daniel's fourth beast is unlike all the others. It's far more powerful. It's far more widespread. And scholars are nearly unanimous in believing that this fourth beast is the Roman Empire, which Daniel was prophesying. And now when we look at what's going on here in Revelation 13, you get an amalgamation of the three beasts in Daniel chapter 7. A lion, a bear, and a leopard. And so the the revelation beast is an amalgamation of the worst characteristics of the other empires that preceded the Roman Empire. And so once again, this points to Rome, ancient Rome. And the beast, we're told, compels worship. He wants worship from human beings. In the days of, uh, for instance, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, the emperor was worshipped, but only after he died. It wouldn't have been considered appropriate by the Roman people to worship a living human being. But after he was dead, they they could worship him. They didn't see any problem with that. No living emperor ever demanded worship until the emperor Nero. And under the emperor Nero... This cult of emperor worship expanded rapidly, and it became a test of loyalty to the emperor. And the Roman soldiers would carry their banners, their standards, um, with the the representation of Nero's uh, emperorship, and they would literally stop and they would worship those banners as though they were worshiping Nero himself. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was an eyewitness to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., reports that the Romans brought those banners or those standards in into the Holy of Holies, and the soldiers worshipped them there as a deliberate act of defilement and desolation. In 64 A.D., a fire broke out in Rome near the Circus Maximus, and it burned for 10 days. And thousands and thousands of people died. 71% of Rome was destroyed. Thousands lost everything. And the people were exceedingly angry. The rumor was that the fire had actually been set by Nero himself because he wanted to clear the way to make monuments to himself but even if he's not the even if the rumor's not true he certainly watched the fire with glee and did very little to have it put out because as i said he was planning monuments to himself on the newly vacant land but nero blamed it on the christians and it is during this time that both the apostle peter and the apostle paul were martyred. The more you learn about Nero, the more disgusting he becomes. For instance, during this period after the fire of Rome, Nero decided that he would use Christians to light his garden parties. And so he would bury them waist deep in the dirt, and he would pour pitch over their upper bodies, and he would light them on fire, and that would be the torches by which he had his evening garden parties. Most of our resources about Emperor Nero are not Christian. They're pagan. Listen to this. He murdered several of his family members. He kicked his pregnant wife to death. He castrated a young boy, and then he married him. The the Roman writer Suetonius records that he devised a kind of game, where he dressed up in the skins of wild animals and pretended to be an animal. And then he would have himself brought into the Circus Maximus in a cage. And he would be released from the cage. And he would attack the genitals of men and women who were tied naked to stakes all around the Circus Maximus while pretending to be a lion or a leopard or a bear. And this was done to entertain the crowds. The Roman historian Tacitus described Nero's cruel nature. Uh, the Roman naturalist Pliny described uh, Nero this way He's a destroyer of the human race and the poisoner of the world. Juvenal refers to Nero's cruel and bloody tyranny. And Apollonius of Tyranna wrote that uh, the favorite nickname by which the people of Rome called the emperor Nero was simply the beast. He wrote, in my travels, which have been wider than ever man yet accomplished, I have seen many wild beasts in Arabia and India, but this beast, commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads it has, nor if it be a crooked of claw and armed with horrible fangs, and of a wild beast you cannot say that there were ever known any who would eat their own mother, but Nero has gorged himself on this diet. Now there's one last piece of scriptural information that is extremely interesting. Um, In all three languages that we're dealing with in this period of history, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, all three of those languages used letters to represent numbers. We still do that a little bit today with the Roman numerals or the Latin numbering system. Uh, For instance, the Super Bowl that will be played in February is the 58th Super Bowl, and on the official logo, it will say Super Bowl LVIII, and that's fifty-eight in Roman numerals. But it did Greek and Hebrew; they did kind of the same thing. Now, in Revelation thirteen eight, it says that the number of the beast's name is six six six. I want you to go later and look at Revelation thirteen eight and there will be a text note there. And in most modern versions, I don't think the New King James has it, but most modern versions have a text note, and, and you'll see a footnote that says, some early manuscripts say 616. Now that, is a, that, that 616 is a very old variant. Now if you spell Nero's name out in Hebrew, it comes out Neron-Kaiser, Nero-Caesar. And the number of his name in Hebrew is 666. But if you write it out in Greek, it's Nero-Kaiser, and that number is 616. Uh, uh, There's a very famous New Testament scholar, a textual scholar named Bruce Metzger from Princeton University, and he says that this is the clearest example of the, the early writers changing from a Hebrew to a Greek mindset, uh, and they changed that number to make it intelligible to the Greek readers of the letter. Now, Nero died in 68 AD by suicide, and the Roman people were convinced that no one as evil as him could stay dead. And so they were afraid that he would somehow rise from the dead, that he would reappear, that he would come again in power, one way or another. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and the way it unfolded meshed perfectly with Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24. As a matter of fact, the Christians in Jerusalem at that time, remembering what Jesus said, did exactly what Jesus said to do. They didn't come in and get their stuff out of the house if they were on the roof. They immediately fled to the hills, and they actually fled to a place called Petra, and they were safe there, and they were not caught up in the general destruction because they obeyed Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24. Both 1 John and Revelation say that the spirit of Antichrist was already in the world, and Revelation says that these things must soon come to pass. Now, I see this as strong evidence that Paul and John had Nero in view when they were writing what they wrote. And they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit, preparing first century Christians for the horrible persecutions under Nero. But if you look closely at Matthew chapter 24 and at Revelation chapter 13 and at 1 John chapter 2, you will also see that there's other stuff in these passages that doesn't quite fit Nero. I mean, for instance... As bad as the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple was in 70 A.D., it wasn't so bad that if it hadn't been shortened, people living in, for instance, Italy or Spain would have been destroyed. But Jesus says if these days of tribulation aren't shortened, no flesh would be spared. Nor do we have any record, for instance, of Nero trying to control buying or selling. So those things don't fit. And and if Nero, if it's simply, simply as straightforward as Nero's the Antichrist, then you have to ask yourself the question, where's Jesus? He hasn't showed up yet, and it was supposed to take place not long after that. He should be back by now. And this is where I think we have to say that this typology and the double vision stuff comes in. I am persuaded that if you want to know what the Antichrist to come will be like, go back and study Nero and what he was like, and then make it worse. Think about the cruelty of this man. There's almost no way he wasn't possessed by the devil. Think about the cruelty of tearing at prisoner's genitalia with your teeth while pretending to be a lion for the entertainment of the crowd. Think about that. And then think about it being worse, with more power, with greater weapons, with the security apparatus of the state that we have now, with the little thing in your pocket that can record your conversations and monitor exactly where you are at 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 all times and what you are looking at and what you're interested in. Think about the kind of control that he'll have. One day, and I don't know when, this person will make himself manifest. He's being restrained right now by the restrainer who I argued is the Holy Spirit. And you can look at our culture, and you can feel the restraints being slowly taken away. And you look at, and you go, 20 years ago, I never, if you told me this is where we were going to be, I never would have believed it. Where are we going to be in 20 more years? These things are coming. Perhaps we will live to see them. Perhaps we won't. But Jesus' word is sure, and Jesus' word is true. And what he says will come to pass. And if that scares you, I'm sorry, but it's better to be scared and prepared than it is to be surprised. Because if you're prepared, you can say, this is how I will behave in that day, and I will train for that. And I will be ready for that. I will discipline myself for that. I will fast. I will pray. I will practice. I will learn how to love those who hate me. I will learn how to respond to those who are intent on doing me ill. I will learn how to respond to them with kindness. Because there will come a day when that is exactly how we will be called to act towards people who hate us. And it will be a great day. And by your conduct, you shall win many who watch to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because they will look at you and they will say, I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she does it. There's something going on there that's not normal. It's not natural. If I was in her shoes, I would be renouncing. I would be cursing. I would be full of hatred and venom and bile. And she looks at me, and she loves me, and she forgives me. Oh, friends, you can't fake that. You cannot fake your way to that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock.